Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with novelist Tessa Lunny. Tessa's debut novel is April in Paris, 1921, which means we get to travel back to the City of Lights during a formative and formidable era. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I explore books, writing, and literary culture, broadcasting Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Great Conversations is a way to enlarge that discussion. It's a weekly podcast sharing the stories and issues that make our world tick, getting behind the scenes and talking to the creators of the books you love. In April in Paris, 1921, we meet Catherine King Button as she embarks from a boat into London, having departed Europe at the end of the war. Catherine is kiki to those who knew her back in the day, and London's just a pit stop on her way to Paris and the freedom that only that city can offer. Ensconced in a garret in Montparnasse, Kiki embarks on her new life as a society reporter, but she's quickly embroiled in the theft of a Picasso while shadows from the war loom. Join me as we romp through Paris and explore a world thick with opportunity for an ambitious young woman. This is Final Draft. I am Andrew Popel, and right now I'm joined in the studio by Tessa Lunny. Tessa's debut novel is April in Paris, 1921. It's a beautiful year to go back to, a beautiful place to go back to, on a cold morning. Tessa, welcome. Thank you. Lovely to be here. It is, it is, mostly because it's warm. Ah, so warm in here, (laughs) so cold outside. I know. Now, April in Paris, we meet Catherine King Button as she embarks from the boat into London, two years after departing that city at the end of the war. Mm Mm-hmm. Having served as a nurse on the Western Front, Catherine is kiki to all those who know her from those days. London's just a pit stop, though, on her way to Paris, and the freedom that only that post-war liberty and the post-war liberty that the city can offer. Ensconced in a garret in Montparnasse, Kiki is determined to live up to the notoriety as the blonde Australian society reporter. It's a great setup. Kiki is such a wonderful character, but let's contextualise to begin okay. with Kiki's adventures. For, for people that know Paris, you mm-hmm. know, I feel like many, many Australians visit Paris as part of a European uh, grand tour. Yes. <laughs> they still might not appreciate Paris at the beginning of the 1920s. Yes. Mm. So... Paris at the 1920s, Paris in the 19th century was a place of great political and artistic ferment and it started to attract lots of writers and lots of artists, anarchists, revolutionaries uh, and then that, then of course it rolled into World War I where it was the place where all the Commonwealth soldiers, all the American soldiers as well as all the French soldiers would have their leave being so close to the Western Front and Flanders. And then people just stayed. They didn't want to go home. They couldn't go home. The war had broken them or changed them in so many ways that they just stayed. And then the favourable exchange rate for, say, the British pound or the US dollar meant that more artists came and then more and then more. And so at this time in 1921, the artists who'd been there before the war had returned. New artists were coming in. Places like Montparnasse, which were very cheap to live, they're being on the cusp of sort of you know, very working class places being inhabited by these former middle, these are middle class artists. It's exciting. It was exciting. There was so much going on and people were, people were desperate for the joy of life. Mm. 
Mm. Yeah. So it was it was a staging ground, but also a site of war. So so many people would come and go from there, but mm. they then the, the citizens they also experienced the privations, the horrors of mm. war. So that's very mm. very real and very apparent, having mm. only been a couple of years before. Yes. In 1921. Yes. Well, they're still dealing with the long aftermath of the war. Of you know building graves and dealing with repatriation of bodies and all the really serious grieving business was still was still uh, sort of going on right then. This is what the governments were debating. This is how they were spending their money. And yeah, people were still desperately trying to find themselves jobs and get their families or their lives into some semblance of working order in 1921. The war is very close. And yet it having been a year and a half beforehand two and a half years beforehand, people are also wanting, needing a bit of hope, wanting mm. to look for something new, something different, a way to, to live. They're, they're here. It's a, new, it's a new decade. They need to do something new. To be a bit cliched, the pendulum mm. has literally swung to mm. the opposite extreme and they're looking for the opposite of that privation, the mm. opposite of that, that sense of impending doom and freedom. Mm. And, and that's really why Kiki has returned. She's Australian, so mm. she is incredibly exotic to everyone because she's from around the world but she has she has experienced Paris before she has had her time in the war and very early on you set the tone of Kiki's personal search for liberation and it's a refrain I think that would resonate with so many women today it's not like it's not like liberation was achieved in the 20s and we're still enjoying the fruits of it but what would that have meant like how would what would liberation have looked like? What would Kiki have been wanting nearly a hundred years ago? It is nearly a hundred years ago. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary how some of these questions we're still asking ourselves and we're still searching for answers. It would have been a radical thing to ask for freedom. Yet at the same time, because of this ambiguous post-war time, a lot of the things that would have been radical just before the war, unthinkable almost, scandalous, now were a necessity such as women having to work. So they worked in the war and she worked in the war and then there were a lot of women afterwards who had to keep working. The husbands were not coming back or the, the men who would have been husbands were not coming back. For her, I guess um, freedom means the freedom to be herself without the qualifier as a woman. So to be accepted as talented for herself, to be accepted as, as the agent of her own destiny, to be accepted as as powerful and intelligent and and able to make her own decisions. I guess that's the big thing, is able to make her own decisions within her world. And some of these some of these decisions are very difficult to make because there's no path. She would have been the pioneer. Mm. Yeah, or or along or stepping in a path that pioneers such as like Mary Wollstonecraft would have stepped in at the beginning of the French Revolution, but there'd been a long Victorian century in between. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it would have it would have meant breaking a lot of rules and then having to deal with the consequences of breaking rules when nobody knows how to act, what to do. But being in Paris means that she has a lot of insulation from, say, the scandalised looks of her parents or people behaving in a very Victorian way because she's with a group of people who are also breaking rules and trying to find a way to be free. Yeah, she's, she's had to travel half a world to get away from Australia. And I think it would be perhaps uh, controversial to some people listening, but also entirely correct to say that Australia probably was still very Victorian and extraordinarily conservative at the time. Mm, well, it was a much smaller place. Mm. 
Um, Sydney was a much smaller place than it is today. So there was a, a bohemian core mm. who went to cafes and went to the art schools, and but it was small. Mm. It was small, and then the rest of Australia was much more conservative. Mm. Yes, but well, the rest of, I guess I should say, the rest of white Australia. We should make that clear because when we're talking about sort of Australian culture at this time, it's mm. really the... Yeah, it's really the white middle-class culture that we're talking about, and mm. that's Kiki's world. But when she goes over to Paris, it's much more mixed yeah. and a lot freer. And uh, and also being a foreigner means that she can occupy a much more, like a much more ambiguous space, yeah. a much looser space. Mm. Yeah, she's not as confined by her class and her race and her gender. Mm. And that's and that's because yeah, because she's foreign. Being an immigrant can give her a little bit of license to be a bit different. Yeah. Mm. So arriving in Paris, Kiki falls in with artistic circles in Montparnasse mm-hmm. and the cafe culture. Mm. She becomes a model and a lover of Pablo Picasso. And Pablo entrusts Kiki with this mission to locate a stolen portrait mm. uh, and to leverage like her society access to yes. kind of discover this thief. Art and fashion are so integral to Kiki's world. And like the, Paris, this is a city and a time that would come to influence so much of contemporary fashions and tastes. Was it difficult, though, because this is a mystery. Mm. This ultimately becomes a, a thriller, a crime, mystery, much much bigger. Hopefully we get to some of this. Um, was it difficult to get the right balance, juxta- juxtaposing couture and crime? <laughs> um, uh quick answer is no. no, because for me, uh, fashion is part of the way that you move through the world mm. and crime is also the way that you interact with the world. So something like the the fashions of the 20s became very loose and very free. The, sh- the skirts became shorter and the dresses for women became looser. They threw out the corsets. Mm. They started wearing makeup. They cut their hair short. Uh, so this literally changes the way that these Kiki and the women of her time would walk through the world. So she would wear these clothes to meet the people who are confronting the problems of the time. So both the fashion and the crime are of the moment, shall we say. They have to do with what people are doing in that particular moment, in that particular place. So it becomes how you would react to a modern fashion, like getting rid of a corset and cutting your hair, is also maybe how you would react to like political changes, how you have been affected by the war, what how much money do you have and how much money do you have also affects how you wear and so the two the two things i think really speak to each other so for me it wasn't for me it wasn't that hard yeah but i don't see fashion as separate as separate to the way that we live in the world and so much is or can be communicated by what we choose to wear and how and in what context mm. and so this can fit very well with crime or with mystery when you're trying to read people and who they are and what they're trying to say about themselves. Your time period, though, we, we I guess, overlap with the noir, hard-boiled type detective. Mm-hmm. Kiki, I, I guess, has some very peripheral, hard-boiled aspects to her. She's mm. definitely not a pushover. Mm. And I think maybe when I think about fashion and, and mm. art, Bertie is the best example because in his fashion, in his... Uh, suits and mm. in his flamboyance, uh, with the way he dresses, he he really exposes what is, I guess, the traditional conservative dress that the, what we would expect the hard boiled detective to be in the the long pl- plain trench coats. Yes, mm. well, Bertie is a dandy. 
Mm. Um, and I don't know that he would have worn a trench coat having worn them in the trenches. Mm. I think he would have abandoned them along with everything else that was mud-coloured and He brown. has the money to do that, I guess. He has yeah. the money mm. to do that. And he has the inclination as mm. well to be quite so, as you say, flamboyant and brilliant. I guess we think of the detective in the trench coat because we think of the detective as a man. Mm. Um, and I really love sort of contemporary um, contemporary female detectives like Franny Fisher, for example, who turn all that upside down. They still have the great smart dialogue of the hard-boiled noir, which I think is just fantastic, but it's in a, it's in a very different space. Yeah. Are there aspects of what Kiki does that she can only do as a woman? Because, I, again, I'm trying to think of inverting the trope of the hard-boiled detective and mm. putting putting um, uh, Philip Marlowe yeah. in something that was very avant-garde and in terms of dress, he would have stood out like a sore thumb and he would have yes. been shot from two blocks away. <laughs> well, he would have been recognised as a policeman immediately and nobody would have talked to him mm. because he would have telegraphed who he was. I think, I think in terms of Kiki being able to do what she does, it's more because she's Kiki. So mm. she's part of this world mm. and so people trust her and she can gain their trust. She does play on the idea or the conservative nature of things that people don't expect a woman to be doing these things. So they don't expect a, a woman to be to be chasing them or to be after them, to be able to fire a gun with such precision. Uh, and so she is underestimated and takes advantage of being underestimated. But I would... Uh, uh, yeah, I would have said more that it's because because she's so embedded in the world that she mm. is talking to that she can go places that an outsider couldn't go. Mm. Mm. And that gives her access to so many uh, so many wonderful areas of Paris. But before we before we move on from uh, Bertie and the men in the novel, I really mm. I really loved what you did with the role of men in the novel. It's it's wonderful, and it felt to me like you were inverting and playing with tropes that have often been placed on female characters. Uh, Especially in mysteries, I, uh -huh. I saw. So Bertie was sort of a little bit of the the sidekick. Yes. Uh, Tom, the the jealous lover, whose <laughs> his mission, you know, Tom Tom sort of delving deep into what we will come to understand is enemy territory mm. to get information. And when he arrives back, Kiki's like, "Oh no, I, I know that. I know that her prowess mm. has led her to get that information anyway." Mm. And in both Fox and Fern, I saw aspects of the of the fatal personality, if not. <laughs> if not their actual role in the novel. Yeah. Were you consciously riffing on a theme here? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah, I was. I, re I like to read mystery stories. I didn't read them as a teenager or a young woman. I came to read them when I was finishing and after I finished my doctorate and I was quite tired and I loved the tight structure of the genre and how that leaves a lot of room for innovation. But... I get bored of reading women in only certain roles and of everything being about men talking to men about other men and then women are sidekicks, decoration, plot points. So yes, I wanted to I wanted to turn that inside out and write the world as I experienced it, really, which is that women are not plot points or sidekicks or hysterical femme fatales and it's often the men who are just as say emotionally vulnerable or emotionally volatile the men who are just as manipulative and I think a lot of it has to do with as well power who has power in a situation and how does that power operate mm. 
Were there places you couldn't go? I mean, I, I just note the role of Fox mm. and given the time period. So we haven't we haven't directly talked about this, but mm. Kiki arrives as a fa- as a fashion society reporter. Yes. She's enlisted as a detective by Pablo Picasso, and then she is reactivated yeah. as a, as a covert agent from her time in the war by. Fox. Mm. And so Fox occupies this role as a as a handler that we know so well from thrillers mm. and um you know even the the James Bond M type of character. We can have Judy Dench play that character now. Yes. But could Fox have been a female character in 1921 or do you think he had to be male? I think it makes it much more plausible if he's male. Mm. By the World War 2 things had changed a lot. Mm. And so the Fox character could have could be a woman, in fact, was a woman many times. Mm. Um, but World War One, World War One, it makes much more sense if he was male. And there were a lot of sort of female spies and female mm. operatives, and there were women who dressed up as pilots and dressed up as soldiers and mm. joined the fight as well. But these stories are only just sort of starting to come out, are only just becoming known, and they're not as yeah, not as known as they were in World War Two. Yeah, it just makes it much more plausible. But what I, yeah, what I also wanted to, to talk about with Fox and Kiki is again that um, power and how power plays out uh, with information and with sex and with language mm. and because Kiki is heterosexual, uh, I wanted it to be a male female relationship between her and Fox because it also then Fox provides a counterpoint to people like Bertie and Tom. He gives her something no one else can give her and takes much more as well and then how she deals with that continual power play. And mm. and spoiler free, you do actually play with that and start to invert that power relationship as I guess any power relationship I guess does ultimately as it progresses, but mm. it's very interesting where that relationship goes. We can't say too much because that's getting right into the, <laughs> the right into the, the thick of it. Um, I guess one one area that I, I really want to um, go to before we before we say goodbye mm. is it's a thriller, it's a spy novel to boot, and shadowing the events of 1921 is the looming storm of fascism and Nazism, something that is well understood by any reader of mm. your novel. But Kiki, for Kiki and her friends, that's an unrealised future. I mean, there is even a moment where the the fascists are being discussed, and Kiki is is a little unsure what how to fit these people into her understanding of the world because it mm. is something that is so new and emerging. Mm. For you, though, what was it like to write within these strictures? I mean, perhaps this is a problem for future Kiki Button mysteries, which I'm I'm going to confidently guess are coming. Um, but there are obviously some things you can't do. Like Kiki can't assassinate Hitler. Mm. Um, <laughs> just, to, no. just to jump out to the wildest possible example. Yes. yes. To be honest, it's a delight. So as I, I did my doctorate in war fiction, um, and so I looked a lot at World War I to Afghanistan, and so I read a lot about the interwar period. So it's actually enormous fun to go into that space and see how the different political situations are playing off each other, the revolution in Russia and the rise of communism, 
with the rise of fascism and then how that worked in these early parts and what other people are doing with art and modernism and fashion and, say, the strikes in Weimar, Germany, and how Germany was coming to terms with such a horrendous loss and then their attempts at democracy in the 20s. I loved it. I thought it was great. And the thing is, if you... Because Kiki's not a real person, she meets real people like Pablo Picasso and and Fernand Leger, but she's not real. I have a lot of space to play with her. And all of those main characters like Bertie and Fox are not real either, but they occupy spaces that are real. But it gives me a lot of it gives me a lot of freedom to move. She can participate with this part of <clears throat> this part of the history, but not with another part. I'm not sort of strictly set along the line. But I think it's very interesting to, to also to think about those alternative histories. What, especially when you relate it back to now. So there she is at the beginning of the fascist movement. The fascist movement is happening in Germany, and Italy, and Spain, and then it has adherents in Britain and in France. But how do you how, how do you know what's happening? We know what's happening, but how do you understand what's happening? Mm. How do you like do you foresee doom? It's almost twenty years later. That's a long lead up before the Second World War, and it's going to be nineteen thirty three. So that's another twelve years before Hitler comes to power. So it's very difficult to recognise what might be happening at this very early nascent time. And communism, for example, and the Russian Revolution would have been much more mm. pressing and much more potent as Paris was flooded with both Bolsheviks and Mensheviks who hated each other and all the exiled aristocracy who spoke French fluently. That's what they spoke at home. So it's also fascism is the big one for us because we know what's coming. But I think for her it's something different and I wanted to explore how it might be how it might be to live to live in this day to day so that you can relate it back to now. How do you know how do you know what's coming? How can you pick what's going to be the important political point and how can you react in a personal way when you have personal stories of of like what's happening in Russia with communism or what's happening in Germany with the Weimar Republic versus the old soldier fascist stormtrooper, not stormtroopers, ah, Sturmabteilung. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, I found it. I found it great. I love. I love that area, that era of history, and and to sort of take a a daily route through it. They sort of to live a life through that time. I think provides a lot of scope to ask questions. Yeah, to ask questions and make up some answers. I am speaking with Tessa Lani and we are discussing April in Paris, 1921. That is the period that Tessa is so evocatively describing for us. Uh, if you would like to walk uh, a day, a week, an adventure in that time, I would definitely recommend April in Paris, 1921. And Tessa, look, I really hope... Um, Look, I really hope Kiki is going to tie Tom's shoelaces together so she can jump on a, a train to the Weimar, the Weimar Germany, because it was also so avant-garde. It had so much great music and mm. so much great foment and artistic. Mm. Um, yeah, I hope that's a future adventure. Uh, it definitely is. She's. I've. I've got big plans, but Berlin is definitely one of those plans. There's a great picture by a. Um, there's a photo by a man called August Sander of a woman called Sylvia von Harden, and she looks like the epitome of the time. She's got the bob haircut and the and the dress, and she's smoking a cigarette, and she looks both defiant yet at the same time vulnerable as she stares into the camera. I'm like, Kiki needs to meet her. 
in a whole there's a whole future book where she where Kiki and Sylvia do something get up to some mischief I don't know what it is <laughs> yet to discover it is April in Paris 1921 Tessa Lunny thank you so much for coming thank in you. and speaking to me for final draft thank you so much that's it for this great conversation with Tessa Lunny Tessa's debut novel is April in Paris 1921 and it's out now through Harper Collins Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast and discover more fantastic Australian writing delivered straight to your phone every day. If you're enjoying the show, please rate us. It'll help others discover the world of Australian literature on Final Draft's Great Conversations. And to keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, why not follow us on Twitter and Facebook? Just look for Final Draft 2SER. My name's Andrew Popel, and I will be back next week with more Great Conversations from Final Draft. I'll see you then.